Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and now it is time for the words of Jesus, which I always look forward to. We're trying to do that on Wednesdays, and uh, my guest today is Dr. Craig Evans, and he has got such an illustrious uh, resume that I'm just going to say he is back, and I'm glad he's with us. Craig, welcome. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. So a couple of questions uh, for you. Uh, when, how old were you when you got your Ph.D.? <laughs> When I officially received the degree, yes. I was 31. Okay, well, congratulations. <laughs> so, and your thesis was on Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10. Do I have that right? That's correct. It's a very controversial passage, both in the uh, Old Testament, but also in the New, where it gets quoted by Jesus himself. And so I wanted to jump into a tough one. And it also gave me the chance to work with both Testaments, to work with Hebrew as well as Greek and other languages, and it was a good it was a good kind of dissertation to get one well trained in the field because I had to look at a variety of texts that are outside the Bible, such as the Dead Sea Scrolls. So I, yeah. I learned a lot in doing that. Yeah, fascinating. And then, how many brothers and sisters, if any, did you have growing up? <laughs> uh, <clears throat> three brothers and a sister. Okay, and where did you fit in in the family? I was number one. Oh wow! So I had all the responsibilities. <laughs> yeah, they were all looking up to, uh, to the older brother. And what uh, what was the first car you had? Oh, it was a 1954 Chevy green colored half ton pickup with <laughs> with the wood boards. <laughs> nice in, in the bed, yeah, and running boards uh, on oh. the side. Oh man, I wish I had it now. Oh, I know. You know, it'd get hot. I grew up in Southern California, so in the summertime, I'd take cl- wooden clothespins and put them on the fuel line that went to the carburetor. Yeah, what so would I that wouldn't do? get vapor lock. Isn't that great? Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> I, I have to ask, where did you learn that trick? <laughs> well, you know, I kept getting these vapor locks, you know, and, and if people don't know what that is, you know, the gas gets so hot just from the heat of oh, the sure. engine that uh, you get up with bubbles in the line, and then, of course, then you're, not, you're starved. Your engine starts lurching and spitting and almost conking out. <laughs> and some guy said, oh, there's a trick here. You need insulation. All you have to do is put these clotheslines, uh, clothespins on it. And I did that. And, you know, back in the day, you know, you'd pull into a gas station, and they'd open the hood and check your oil. And, and of course, nobody does that now, but he opened it up, and the, the guy looked in and saw the clothespins. <laughs> Hey, you're pretty smart. You're taking care of your vapor lock, right? I said, yep, it works. (laughs) So one last car question. So when you started driving in California, how much was gas per gallon? 25 cents. 25, okay. All right. Once in a while, there was a gas ward. You could get it for 19 Nice, nice. (laughs) (laughs) You felt so smart when you did that, didn't you? (laughs) Well, Well, I drive into a gas station and, and hand a guy... $2. $2. And I say, you know, and, and that would be a half tank of yeah, gas. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. So you've written over 70 books and six over 600 journal articles and reviews uh, to your name. And you've, you know, if they were going to remake the movie A Beautiful Mind, I would nominate you. 
Oh, well, thank you for that. But, of course, that guy, you know, had serious mental problems. So I, I, let's not pursue that analogy any further. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm looking forward to uh, talking about a passage today in uh, Luke, chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. That's a good one. That's yeah. one of my favorites. Okay. Tell me why, and let's get into it. Well, you know, the, the Luke who wrote uh, the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts he probably was a Gentile. Uh, he might have gone to synagogue. He might have been a God-fearer. But of the four gospel writers, he was probably the one that was not Jewish. And it's really interesting. And, of course, he's Luke the physician. That's how Paul identifies him. The church tradition agreed with that. <clears throat> and so he was very concerned with the perspective of the odd man out, if you're on the outside looking in. The play, Israel, an Israelite's place in the King of God was well understood. Mm-hmm. This is a Jewish story. You know, if Jesus is the Messiah, he's fulfilling Jewish prophecies, the Jewish scriptures. He's in the Jewish synagogue. He's not preaching in pagan temples. He's in the synagogue. He goes to the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. So it's a Jewish thing through and through. And in fact, one of the big difficulties for the church, the book of Acts beautifully deals with it, and, and that is, can non-Jews become Christians? Isn't that strange? Mm-hmm. Like see, today that shoe is on the other foot, and, uh, and, and you know people have just lost sight of that. It was a Jewish movement. Jesus was a Jewish person from Nazareth and Galilee. And his genealogy just goes right back to you know King David, the family of David. You know, it's as Jewish as can be. And uh, and so the Christian movement began moving. And you already had hints in Jesus's ministry that Gentiles can be blessed. The Syrophoenician woman is a Gentile. She is content to have the crumbs that fall off the children's table. That's mm-hmm. all she needs. And it's right. a beautiful statement of faith. It is. It is. And, yeah, yeah, and the centurion, he's, he's very likely uh, a Gentile, maybe a Roman, maybe an auxiliary, but he's not Jewish. And his servant is sick, and he tells Jesus, "Look, I respect you. You don't even please don't even come into my house, because a Jewish person normally would not go into a Gentile's house." And so he so respects Jesus as a Jewish person, he says, "I don't expect you to, but I know you're powerful. You just need to say the word." And Jesus remarks, "Wow, I haven't seen that kind of faith, not even in." not even in Israel, and so the, the man's uh, servant is healed. So there are, there are hints in the ministry that, yes, the Gentiles get their turn. So Jesus sends his disciples out and says, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Don't go to the Gentiles. Go to them first. And so the idea of to the Jew first, then to the Greek, which, of course, Paul flat outright states, and then he does in the book of Acts, that goes back to Jesus so that's that's the context in which Luke writes, and Luke is concerned with that. And so Luke selects deliberately every parable, every teaching of Jesus that he can find where Jesus reaches out to the disenfranchised mm-hmm. or to the people that other people would assume are non-elect. Tax collectors, sinners, uh, people who might be Gentile, Samaritans. It's amazing how Luke goes out of his way to collect the teaching of Jesus that that speaks to that question. And I think that's he's doing that deliberately so that a Gentile who hears the gospel of Luke realizes, oh, I have a place at the table. Oh, this Savior, this Messiah, 
is for me too, not just for people who are Jewish and you know go to the synagogue and so on. So that's the backdrop. And so these stories in Luke that are only in Luke, the one we're talking about right now is Luke, you know, seven thirty six to fifty. It's only in Luke. It's not in Matthew. It's not in Mark. It's not in John. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those three synoptic Gospels, are called synoptic because they share so much stuff. You can see them together in parallel columns. But this story is only in Luke. And others, like the parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the good Samaritan, they're only in Luke. And it's because they make this point so well. So here's this woman. And we need to back up to the context. The guy doesn't like Jesus especially. He's at a banquet. He's not being, we find out later, he has not shown any courtesies to Jesus. Why is that? Well, my best guess is Jesus had preached in the synagogue, and there was an obligation to show the preacher some respect, even grudgingly, and say, okay, come over to my house, and you can have dinner with with me and some of my friends. And so Jesus is this well-known speaker talking about the kingdom of God, it's rumored, you know, he's a miracle worker. It's rumored he might even be the Messiah. So I can easily imagine Simon, and we have his name, Simon the Pharisee, who has invited Jesus to his house, probably obligated to do so. Maybe he's a synagogue ruler or one of them. And so there's Jesus, and they're around the table. And, of course, we're in Galilee where Elijah and Elisha used to minister. They were well-known prophets. They're local heroes. And one of the things that both Elijah and Elisha could do, they had, they had um, clairvoyant power as prophets. They knew things. God would reveal to them things about people they'd never met. Mm. And so uh, this is part of the background. This is why we do the study. This is why, you know, you, you do all, look at all these texts, you do the archaeology, you do all this, because the Bible stories presuppose this kind of knowledge. We don't possess it. You and I don't know this growing up in North America. And so we have to, we have to study it because this is 2,000 years ago, different language, different place, different culture. So, so what happens is there's Jesus. They're reclining. We don't even know that kind of thing. We imagine people sitting upright in chairs at tables. No, no, no. They're on these low-level couches just a few inches above the floor, reclining around this community table, reaching out leaning on a, right, on a left elbow, reaching out with a right hand to the dish, taking their food. And so your feet are away from the table. And so this woman accesses Jesus' feet, and she's weeping. And her te- some even think she has a tear bottle with her. But in any case, her tears are dripping down onto Jesus' feet. And she actually washes, she washes Jesus' feet with her tears, dries his feet with her hair. And of course, Simon the Pharisee is watching this. And there's a couple other assumptions you need to know. It isn't just, oh, he's a prophet. He knows things about people he's never met. But also, you should know that if you're a holy man, you don't want somebody who's a sinner, a common person touching touching me, not even my feet. Mm-hmm. So Simon's watching this, and very likely he's assuming Jesus isn't a true prophet Because if he was, he would know who this woman is, and he would never allow her to touch his feet. And so he's probably pretty smug, thinking that he's got the upper hand on Jesus socially and religiously, watching this. I can imagine him looking at a friend, winking, 
maybe nudging him as they see this going on, thinking, oh, this <laughs> this guy who talks big about the kingdom doesn't know what he's talking about. He, this woman is touching his feet, and he doesn't probably thinks she's my servant, finally belatedly getting around to showing courtesy and washing his feet, as we normally do for guests. So Jesus is aware of what this man is thinking, looks up to him and says, Simon, I have something to say. And I imagine it got kind of quiet. And Simon looks at Jesus and says, well, okay, teacher, go ahead and say it. And Jesus then, as he often does, uses a parable. There was this creditor, and he had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. That's a lot of money. It's 500 days wage. So you're talking about like two months' salary. And uh, and the other one... Uh, uh, or, or 20 months, it's more like 20 months salary, and the other one owed 50, which would be like two months. So one has a huge debt, and one has, you know, it's a debt, but it's not that big. And so he forgave them both. So he asked Simon, which one of the debtors do you think will love the creditor the most? And I could just imagine Simon trying not to roll his eyes, thinking, what a no-brainer, this one's easy, is this the best this guy can do? And so he says, well, I suppose it was the one who was forgiven the most. And this is where it really gets neat. He looks back at the woman and then says to Simon, do you see this woman? And I'll tell you, if I were Simon, I'd be looking for the trap door where I could <laughs> drop out of sight. <laughs> do you know why? why? Because he realizes, and Simon's not stupid. Right. He's not a stupid man. And Given the way the story goes and ends without any controversy, I I think Simon was won over. Oh, yeah. Because in Simon, he's there. He, number one, he knows immediately, this man has read my mind. Mm. And if he's read my mind, he is a prophet. Oh, Craig, I, He's just blown away. Yeah, Craig, it's fascinating. Let me take a break, and we'll come back with uh, Dr. Craig uh, Evans. You can learn more about him at Craig A. Evans, E-V-A-N-S dot com. Craig A. Evans. We'll be right back. We're talking about Luke. Sign up for the free Bible in a Year reading plan at MyFaithRadio.com and get everything you need to follow the plan each day and stay on track, including a printed schedule. Sign up now at MyFaithRadio.com. Dr. Craig Evans is my guest. We're talking about Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50, and I have some serious questions and fun questions uh, for you, Craig. Uh, let's just get one of the fun ones out of the way, if you don't mind. And, Go ahead. Uh, there was a listener that wanted to know, what kind of mileage per gallon did you get on your truck? <laughs> oh, not the greatest. <laughs> I didn't oh, think man. so. <clears throat> on the highway, maybe 20. Okay. But around town, I doubt if it was ever more than 15. Okay. All right. Well, <laughs> Let, let, let's go back to this uh, situation now. Jesus is invited to Simon the Pharisee's house, and it seems like there were three things that were missed right away. He, he was not greeted with a kiss, he was not anointed with oil, and his feet weren't washed. That's correct. 
And uh, what I suggested was uh, when this woman began weeping and wiping his feet with tears and anointing his feet with ointment, it's possible, in fact, I think it's likely that Simon the Pharisee, the host, thinks Jesus is assuming that, oh, this woman is Simon's servant. She finally got around to doing things. But when he looks at Simon and tells that parable, and Simon answers it correctly, the person who's going to love the creditor the most is one who uh, was forgiven the biggest debt. And then he looks at her and says, see this woman. And that's when Simon thinks, oh, my goodness, I'm had. <clears throat> the friend that, that he's been winking at pretends that he doesn't know Simon anymore. And so there's Simon, you know, he's just had. And Jesus says, this woman whose sins are many. And Simon is wondering, how does he know that? He doesn't know this woman. He's never been in this village before. He's never met her. Yet he's got this supernatural power. He knew what I was thinking. Now he knows who this woman is. And and so Jesus identifies her as a sinful woman whose sins are many. And then he says her sins are forgiven. Why? Because she loved much. He identifies her as the person in the parable who had the greatest debt. And by the way, I don't know if you know this, but in Aramaic, the word for debt and sin is the same word. It's hoba. And so there's a word play. And so, again, Simon's not a dum-dum. He realizes this parable was not about two people that owed money. These are two people who were sinners. And the big sinner was forgiven Hmm. and loves the person, loves God who forgave her. I'm the little runt. I'm the piker with small sin, and therefore I show it by little love. And so he's forgiven. He just doesn't show much because he hasn't gone through the gutter. He hasn't had the the problems in life, the horrible stuff that whatever's overtaken this woman. And so it's a beautiful story. I mean, Jesus just nails him. And then he looks at this woman and says <clears throat> to this woman that he has announced publicly her sins, which are many, and he hasn't embarrassed her. Everybody knows. And he says, your sins are forgiven. Your your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And this is an honor-shame culture. Everybody in town would be talking about this. Everybody now knows that she's had this engagement with the well-known healing, preaching Messiah figure, Jesus of Nazareth. And he has publicly stated that her sins, though many, are forgiven. She would never forget that moment for the rest of her life. Well, Craig, when I look at this passage, and now just let's just take, let's go back and let's make the dinner party at your house. And, you know, food and beverage is flowing. You're in your best toga. Jesus turns to you and says, uh, Craig, I have something to say to you. Boy, that gets your attention, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it certainly does. And see, there's shop talk. I mean, Luke, remember, this is the Gospel of Luke. Only Luke tells us a story about Jesus 12 years old. Going and, he's, and his parents wonder, you know, they're in a caravan, they're on their way back, and this is how you pass through Samaria, because it could be dangerous. They're on their way back north to Galilee, and then hey, you know, a day later in the trip, they wonder, where is Jesus? And they go running back, and he's in the temple precincts, and he's, you know, he's shop-talking, he's talking theology with the teachers, and they're impressed. This guy's 12 years old, and he really knows his stuff. Mm-hmm. And see, this is of interest to Luke. 
And so it's very likely Luke would understand this story, however he heard it from one of the disciples. Luke was in <coughs> Luke was in the Holy Land for a while. You know, Paul was in jail waiting to be transported back to Rome, and Luke has a chance to meet family, meet disciples, learn all kinds of things. And so I'm sure he he's assumes that this is theology. They're talking about the kingdom of God. They're probably talking about prophets. They're probably talking about Isaiah. They're talking about the sermon that Jesus preached, we assume, in the synagogue that led to this dinner. He probably said something about Isaiah. That was Jesus' favorite book. He quotes it in his Nazareth sermon that Luke also talks about. Luke has his own version of it, Luke 4. Jesus quotes Isaiah 61. So, you know, the eyes of the blind will be opened up. They'll have good news proclaimed to them. And that's what Jesus is doing. So I can easily imagine this theological talk, talking about the kingdom of God, talking about redemption, restoration, Israel once again seeing uh, the great days come, maybe maybe talking even Messiah talk, you know, who knows? And, uh, and, and so while this talk is going on, Simon is noticing this woman washing Jesus' feet. He's very, I can just imagine he's just so smug, thinking, <laughs> who is this guy? He's, he really is a hick from the sticks. He may talk big, but he doesn't know anything. He would never let this woman touch his feet if he knew who she was. And it turns out he does know who she is. He knows her better than anyone else does. So to be a fly on the wall would have just it would have been a mind-blowing experience. Mm-hmm. And the fact that this woman is described in Luke uh, seven thirty-seven, a woman in the city who was a sinner. That's how yep. she's described. Now, yeah, she mu- she earned this money through immoral behavior, but she probably had some means. She probably had done okay. We, yeah, and you know we don't know. We don't and, know, but I mean, she shows up in an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. I mean, shopping for alabaster flasks in the department store; those are eighty bucks today. So even the flask <laughs> itself costs some money, yeah, right? Yeah, she. You're right on that. She. I don't know how wealthy she was. Was she wealthy? But not wealthy. She probably but, isn't dirt poor, right? But we. We just want to be careful about what we assume. Was she a prostitute? Maybe. Maybe. Yep. And and from a Pharisaic point of view, you could be classified as a sinner pretty easily by simply not doing what they think is really important, what we call the oral law, the the tradition of the elders, and so on. I mean, Jesus and his disciples are all the time accused of violating things, eating with unwashed hands, not doing things that, according to the tradition of the elders. So, but I suspect this woman probably probably was guilty of prostitution or something close to that, the way the tenor of the whole story, the way it goes. By the way, we should not assume, we shouldn't conflate stories. Uh, In the Middle Ages, it was, oh, this is Mary Magdalene. Well, there's no evidence of that. All right. Hey, I just realized, Craig, uh, I have to take a break. We'll be right back with Dr. Craig Evans as we continue talking about Luke chapter 7. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. 
What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Dr. Craig Evans is my guest, and we are talking about Luke chapter 7 today. And the uh, passage involves the sinful woman forgiven. It's verses 36 to 50. And Craig, I think if if I'm if I'm correct, did this woman cross some social barrier to be in the proximity of Jesus? Well, that's a real good question. And so the only thing that makes sense socially when they say this, you know, Jesus is at the house, it really means he's on the man's property. There's no way this woman, known as a sinner in the village, and Simon knows who she is, and he's a Pharisee, not a chance in the world he she would be allowed to actually step through the doorway under his roof. And homes were small. Uh, if you've been to Israel, you've seen the ruins, you've seen the foundations, the, the bottom, one or two feet worth of the wall uh, at the bottom. And you understand how small these houses are. There's no way you could have a crowd of people inside this guy's house, and there's no way a sinful woman would be allowed in his house. So what we think is there's a house, but there's also uh, a stone wall that surrounds his property. And part of this property, uh, almost like a courtyard or a picnic area, would be open to the public. The gate would be thrown open, and it's likely on the grass, as it were, or some kind of a patio setting outdoors, you have these people congregating. And since it's open house, it probably everybody who had attended the synagogue service, which again is the only setting that makes any sense, because of the man clearly doesn't want to have Jesus there. He's shown him no courtesy. So I just don't understand what other context it could be. It's, so it's some kind of obligatory thing, probably relating to Jesus preaching in the synagogue. He's been invited, other guests are invited, and the door has been thrown open to other people in the synagogue to come and go as they please. And it's probably all afternoon. And so during this session, as they recline around table, this woman gains access to the property, but she's not inside the house. And that's the only way this can happen. Okay. And so she gains access to Jesus' feet and does what she does. Very interesting. Um, so one of the questions that pops into my head is, how how willing are we to put ourselves at risk to get to Jesus? Well, that, that's, a good, that's a good question. I'll tell you, the guys that really impressed me carried the friend, their crippled friend to the house, and this was in Capernaum. And, uh, to, you know, it's near the beginning of the, of the narrative, the gospel story, and this, they can't even get into the house. Now, in this particular case, Jesus is inside the house, and the house is packed, mm-hmm. and people are at the doorway. People are hanging out of the windows, and they triangulate. They see where everybody's looking, so they guesstimate. There are probably four rooms. This is typically square-shaped houses. They're bisected twice, and so you have four roughly equal-sized rooms. That's all it is. And you have this outside staircase that accesses the roof, the flat top, where people can put things on the roof to dry in the sun. So they know where Jesus is. So they take their friend up up there and, and remove some of the roof. And we know how these roofs are made. 
And yes, you could remove some of the roof, and yes, you could repair it later, which I'm sure the homeowner insisted on. And they lower their crippled friend right in front of Jesus where he is seated and teaching. Now, that shows a lot of moxie, I think. That's showing, showing some daring and courtesy. But back to the woman, you know, she knows everybody's looking at her. She's sobbing. Mm-hmm. She's washing Jesus' feet, and it's an honor-shame culture. I can't emphasize that enough. We don't understand that real well. And she's embarrassed. I have no doubt about it. She probably feels foolish and sheepish. She knows her reputation. She knows everybody knows. She knows there's a chance that Jesus will withdraw his feet, pull them away from her, and shoo her away. Say, what are you doing? How presumptuous. It's like the woman with the hemorrhage who reaches out and grabs Jesus' coat. Same thing. Like, who in the world? What are you doing? How dare you? So here she is. A woman, a stranger, touching Jesus' feet, doing what she's doing, and on top of all of that, she's known as a sinner. And that tells me she heard his sermon. I'm sure she sat in the back, heard his sermon, understood, probably got touched by grace, realized that she could, in fact, be forgiven. Mm-hmm. And that's what's brought on the tears and so she had a moving experience hearing Jesus Jesus preach, either out in the country or in that synagogue or several times, who knows. And so she's come to him, and she does what she does to show her love for him. And Jesus understands that. Simon the Pharisee, who ought to, doesn't. And so it is Simon the Pharisee who gets embarrassed in front of the whole company. <clears throat> I, I would give anything to be there and witness that. Mm-hmm. Craig, and you said earlier you thought Simon the Pharisee was won over. Yeah, I do, because, um, you know, at the end of some stories, uh, Pharisees are angry, or they consult with scribes or Herodians or somebody, how they might destroy him, how they might, you know, there's none of that here. And I think that's part of what Luke is doing. Uh, We could, maybe in a future show, we can talk about the... uh, parable of the Good Samaritan, the way it ends, I think the scribe who asked Jesus, who's my neighbor? And Jesus answers by telling the parable of the Good Samaritan. And that, that is a very rich context and a very rich parable. The way he, he ends the talk and says, the one who showed mercy, that's the correct answer. And, uh, and he's commended. And there are other engagements where Jesus is asked, well, what's the greatest commandment? You know, and he taught, you know, love God with all you have and all you are, love your neighbor as yourself. And, and the, the young man that asked Jesus this, this is in Mark, for example, in the temple precincts, he says, Master, you've answered well. To love one's neighbor is more than all offerings, whole burnt offerings and so on. And Jesus says, you know, you're not far from the kingdom of heaven. And so we shouldn't assume that every time Jesus is engaged or someone seemingly in a hostile way asks a question, that it results they're still mad, they're still enemies or whatever. I think he's won him over because he does not come back at all. What can he say? He doubted that Jesus was a prophet, but the way Jesus showed that he knew his heart, knew who this woman was, I think convinced the man he is a prophet. That changed everything, and from that moment on, I think he respected Jesus and and listened to him and did not disagree 
with his public pronouncement that this woman whose sins were many, in fact, now is forgiven. Yeah. All right, Craig. Now, as a professor, I'm that pesky kid in your front row, and I have my hand up right now, and I'm going, oh, 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 pick me, pick me. <laughs> so you say, okay, Bill, what's your question, right? Go ahead. <laughs> okay, Bill, what's your question? All right, uh, Dr. Evans, I see that since this woman came in who is described as a sinner, and all she does apparently is cry, and her tears go on uh, the feet of Jesus, and she wipes them with her hair, so she's taken her hair down, which is, I think, a pretty provocative move in that culture. A woman lets her hair down, and we find in verse 50, uh, Jesus says, your faith has saved you. Apparently, she has said nothing yet, and all of a sudden, Jesus declares, your faith has saved you. That's right. And again, you know, who else but Jesus can say that because he is aware, number one, she's a sinner. He is aware that Simon is thinking certain thoughts, like if Jesus were really a prophet, he would know who she is and would not, therefore, allow her to touch him. So he's aware of what people are thinking. He is aware that this woman has repented. He is aware that this woman, having been touched by God's grace through Jesus' preaching, is showing an outpouring of love for him. So he wants to assure her and wants everybody to hear him say this when he assures her that her sins are forgiven and that it's her faith, not some deed. Mm -hmm. She didn't do something special. She didn't keep keep the oral tradition or the uh, traditions of the elders perfectly for a month and win the brownie points. It's her response of faith to the offer of God's grace. That's the good news. That is why the gospel is such good news. And that's why anybody can receive it, because it doesn't require some task or a series of purification efforts to make oneself holy enough in the sight of God. This was the real tension between the Jesus movement on the one hand and some of the Jewish leaders, teachers on the other hand, that's why they were upset that these Gentiles were coming into the church. How can this be? This this calls into question purity. And Paul, see, was one of these. And he has his conversion experience. And, of course, where is that narrated? But in the book of Acts, mm-hmm. Luke's volume 2. So Paul discovers that righteousness doesn't come from uh, trying to maintain purity all the time and win God over. He realizes that ultimately forgiveness of sins is a matter of God's grace. God is graciously reaching out to the sinner because Christ died on the cross for sins. That's the ultimate atonement. And so that just totally transformed Paul, the former Pharisee, the way he thinks. And so here's Simon, a Pharisee, would have been a good friend of Paul, no doubt, had they bumped into each other. And so here's Simon thinking there's only one way out for this woman. She's got to do A, B, C, D. She has to do a whole bunch of things to become pure once again and and acceptable in the sight of God. And she's responded to Jesus's preaching about God's love, grace, and mercy in faith. And now is expressing deep feeling and gratitude. Uh, I'm sure she's still grieving for her past life and, and the wreckage. Sin causes wreckage. And you might repent and be forgiven, but the damage is still there. The scars are still there. So there she is weeping, and Jesus assures her she is, in fact, saved. And it's not because she poured the oil on his feet. 
She didn't save herself because she washed Jesus' feet. It's because of the grace that touched her heart that she does what she does. And Jesus is assuring her, because theologically she would be pretty simple and pretty naive, he's assuring her that it was her faith that has resulted in her forgiveness of sins and assurance of salvation. It's not because she washed his feet or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Craig, would would she had understood along with other people hearing Jesus say those words, your faith has saved you? I think so. Uh, what we don't know uh, is what all she'd already heard. True. I mean, the fact that she goes to Jesus and has this, you mentioned it, it is an expensive vial of perfume in this alabaster flask. I mean, the fact that she's done this uh, says she had to have heard things. She has clearly responded to Jesus' teaching. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, we're not to believe that she, this is a woman who washes the feet of every stranger she sees. Mm-hmm. She has responded to a particular person having heard him teach, and that's consistent with the entire setting. Why is Jesus having dinner uh, on the premises of this man, Simon, who clearly doesn't care to have him there or show him any respect? He doesn't think he's a prophet. But, oh, well, I'm obligated. The only thing that makes sense to me is Jesus, the itinerant preacher who goes from synagogue to synagogue teaching. So that's what he's done. He's taught. And so Simon's obliged to have him over to his home with other guests for a supper. That's kind of like a potluck dinner. And this woman comes in. So I think she heard Jesus preach. We don't know just once, two times, three times. I don't know. But yes, she would understand what Jesus said, because that would have been part of his preaching, the need to repent and the assurance that God, who is merciful and gracious, would forgive those who repent. Mm. So she has heard that. And so what she hears from Jesus then affirms what she had heard, affirms her experience, gives her the assurance that she needs to have. She knows she's forgiven. Mm-hmm. We'll take a short break. and We come back more with Dr. Craig Evans. You can learn more about him at Craig A. Evans, E-V-A-N-S dot com. Craig A. Evans. We're continuing our discussion in Luke chapter 7. We're talking about the uh, sinful woman who is forgiven. That's in verses 36 to 50. Be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. Dr. Craig Evans is our guest today, and if you just tuned in, we've been discussing Luke chapter 7, Sinful Woman Forgiven, and I don't want to get off track because we only have a, a one more segment left, Craig, but I did get some other questions, and when you uh, did your doctoral thesis on Isaiah uh, chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, can you just give us and my listeners kind of a, a quick 
two or three minute elevator speech on explaining explaining your your doctrinal position? Well, sure. Uh, the passage is uh, Israel's in deep trouble. Isaiah, the prophet, who's also a priest, is in the temple, and he's standing before the altar in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, and suddenly the whole temple is just filled with brilliance, and he's terrified. It's God suddenly appearing before him. And and so he actually identifies which year. This is the year King Uzziah died. He said, you know, he's in the temple, and I saw the Lord. And so the Lord uh, sends him on a mission. He says, Go say to this people, that is the people of Israel, go on hearing, but don't hear. Go on seeing, but don't see. Make the the, the heart of this people fat. Uh, glue shut their eyes, stop up their ears, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand their heart, and turn and be healed. Now, that's quite a message. I've just quoted to you verses 9 and 10. Mm-hmm. You can see why that's controversial. I mean, it's kind of like... Uh, uh, Calvin on steroids. It's like, what, <laughs> mm-hmm. what is this? You know, God doesn't actually want the people to repent. And uh, there's there's a lot of interesting discussion about it, and apparently uh, that's right. It's like Israel has become so rotten, the only thing that can be done now is to judge the nation. And, of course, if you read the rest of Isaiah 6, verse 13 talks about a remnant. Uh, what will grow out of a stump, a a righteous branch that will come out of a stump. And that's what it is. It's a purifying judgment, and that's exactly what it is. And Jesus quotes it himself. The the disciples say to him, what's what's, what's all the parables? And he says, well, for you, the parables disclose the secret of the kingdom of heaven, but for those who are outside, who want to stay outside, it's just meaningless riddles to them. Because, and then that's when he quotes Isaiah 6, 9 to 10. This way they don't see with their eyes, they don't hear with their ears, they don't understand their heart. So that's a hot potato, theologically a hot potato. The Hebrew reads a certain way, the Greek translation reads a little bit differently. Uh, The great Isaiah scroll at Qumran is a little bit different. The uh, rabbis don't like the text at all. The, the idea that God would deliberately blind, make spiritually obdurate the people of Israel, troubles them. The church fathers run with it, as you can imagine. So, uh, And the reformers, John Calvin, Martin Luther, and others. So I found it a fascinating text to look at. It's quoted uh, in all four Gospels. It's alluded to in Paul in a couple of places. And it's a theological hot potato uh, for hundreds of years, and it all starts with Isaiah, who had that vision of the temple. So I thought, hey, this is a text I want to study. It was a rewarding study. I learned a lot. And one thing you're taught, on the one hand, God is sovereign, and yet on the other hand, he's very much open to people who repent, and uh, he will forgive them. So, Craig, clearly you're a man who's not afraid of hot potatoes. <laughs> no, I, I'm not. <laughs> I, I like that about you. I want to I want to go back to Luke seven and the sinful woman who is forgiven because it does culminate in verse fifty when Jesus uh, said to the woman, "Your faith has saved you. Go in peace." Do you believe that line, "Your faith has saved you," was her born from above experience? Yeah, it was clearly so. And this is what, uh, this, when you hear Jesus say that, you realize, ah, that's where Paul got it. 
That's where Paul got it. He meets the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. This is a man who does not believe faith saves. I mean, faith is good, but ultimately what saves is, is your works of law. Ultimately what saves is keeping the law correctly. I mean, Moses commands it, right? So Moses commands the people of Israel, do this, do this, don't do that, and so on. And the Pharisees want to perfect it. They want to build their fence around that, make sure they get it exactly right. And so Paul would say faith is important. We believe that God, you know, he knows what he's talking about. We believe God will keep his promises. We believe a lot of things about God. So faith is good. He would never think it was bad. But to be saved means that you've worked real hard at keeping the covenant correctly, keeping yourself pure, offering up the sacrifices when needed, doing whatever it is that maintains this righteousness. And we don't have to guess anymore. When Paul talks about works of the law, we have a Dead Sea Scroll text, copies, six copies of a letter that explains what the works of the law are. And one of them is to avoid Gentile food. One of them, some of these works of the law, you, you, you eat pure food and you don't eat with Gentiles. And that's exactly where Paul gets into a fight with Peter in, in the letter of, to the Galatians. He gets really angry at Peter because he stopped eating meals with Gentiles. Mm. And that's when he says, hey, we know that nobody is justified by works of law. That's what, he's not talking about what James talks about when he talks about true faith results in works, works of compassion for your neighbor, somebody who's cold or hungry or whatever. Paul's talking about works of law. We now know what that means. And so Peter becomes a coward. He's afraid he'll be criticized. He stops eating with Gentiles. And Paul says, that's what we've left behind. We, don't, we aren't saved by eating the right kind of food. And so he talks about faith instead. So Paul, where does Paul get this? He meets Jesus, and this is the same Jesus that we meet in Luke 7, the woman met him. She's responded to his message of grace in faith, and that's the faith that saves her, not doing a whole bunch of works so she gets pure again. Mm-hmm. Craig, I think Paul brings up the word works roughly 90 times, but he, I think the, the expression works of law is only brought up about 11 times, and I think those uh, verses end up being kind of controversial nowadays. How are we to understand that expression, works of law? Well, that's what I'm trying to say. And, and okay. it's, it's, it's this uh, letter on law that was found in Cave 4 of the Qumran. There were six copies of it. And providentially, although they're fragmentary, there are six copies, and we can put all the fragments together and restore virtually the entire letter. And it identifies 22 works of law that if you keep them, you will be reckoned righteous. Okay. Isn't that interesting? That's so interesting. And so what are these things? Well, you don't do this, you don't do <laughs> that, you don't, you don't mix your grain with Gentile grain. You know, your food has to be pure. Ah, there we go. And so what was Peter doing? He's mixing his grain with Gentile grain. He's eating lunch with Gentiles. Uh-oh, he panics because men from James, and James will later say they had no authorization to do this. And so Peter, instead of standing up to them, says, look, I'm one of Jesus' disciples. In fact, I'm the top banana, and I understand Jesus to say that we can eat food 
uh, with uh, with Gentiles. So quit pushing me around. Quit trying to intimidate me. If he'd done that, Peter would, or Paul would have slapped him on the back, said, "Good boy." But instead, he, oh, oh, I don't want to be out. You know, if you say, you know, you represent James, I'll stop eating with the Gentiles. And so Paul says, "Shame on you," because that we we are not saved. We are not made righteous. We are not justified before God by works of law. And works of law means striving to keep these purity codes. That's what he's talking about. James and James 2 isn't talking about that. He's talking about a faith that has legs. And so you don't just say, oh, I love God, and I love my neighbor, but I never do anything. Uh, that's What kind of faith is that? A faith that is genuine will look at a person who's hungry and in need and says, you know what, I'm going to help you out. That's that's the real kind of faith. And Paul Paul mentions that in Ephesians. You know, you're saved you're saved by grace through faith, he says, it's not a result of works. And everybody quotes that, Ephesians two, eight, nine, but verse ten says, We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, that we should walk in them. Now their works in in Ephesians 2.10 is what James is talking about in James chapter 2. All right. That sounds like a whole other discussion. I'd love to have you back, and we'll talk about that if you wouldn't mind. Don't mind. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Craig Evans. Have a wonderful evening, and thanks for spending time with us today. You're very welcome, Bill. Good chatting with you. I I couldn't agree more. It's been a a delight. All right. That wraps up our show for the day. Thank you uh, uh, to... Jay Warner Wallace for being my amazing guest in hour one, and Dr. Craig A. Evans. You can learn more about him at craigaevans.com. So finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Look forward to spending time with you. Have a great night. See you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.